go. Hi, everybody. Today, I've got a fantastic new guest on the show, first timer, a, a guy that I've known for about four or five years. He invited me to a McGill luncheon a few years ago, hung out with him. Then he invited me to his house. I've yet to reciprocate, so I will self-flagellate later to um, atone for that uh, faux pas. How you doing, Pat Kambampati? Hi, Gad. Thank you for having me. And as people often say when they call into radio shows, I'll say first-time visitor, long-time fan. So it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thank you. Uh, you are a professor of chemistry at McGill University, which I should mention is one of my two alma maters. I did the undergraduate and an MBA at McGill. It's been many, many, many years ago. Uh, finished my MBA in 1990. You're a physical chemist. Maybe you'll explain to us what that's about in a, in a few minutes. Uh, and I wrote these things down, not that I have an idea what they mean, but uh, you study perovskite nanocrystals, quantum dots, and ultra-fast spectroscopy. Take, that's right. Okay, and then you are one of the founding members of uh, SAFS McGill, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. I was honored uh, that they invited me to do, be a keynote speaker at their main event a few years ago. Now there is a, a, a branch of it at McGill University. Uh, I want to get to the bottom of what recently transpired with you, but first maybe we could start with some of your cool chemistry stuff. Can you tell us on any of the things that I mentioned using lay, 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 layman's term, what the hell it is that you're studying? Well, absolutely. And I think one of the things about science, and as we were, we were here in particular because I was writing about a, a grant for a, a proposal for a grant, and what we do is try to write proposals to get grants to do science because we think it can improve the world. So in our grants, we write about improving the economy, training highly qualified personnel, coming up with cure for cancers or a new internet. These are the things we're supposed to do. So in my field, the area that I'm interested in, which is an interface between physics and chemistry, is to use light and lasers in particular to study the properties of materials that might be used for certain applications, like solar cells, light-emitting diodes, flat panel displays, lasers, telecommunications. So all of these involve energetic materials. An energetic material means you can take some electron, make it into an excited state, and that excited state then can be harvested to produce power, can produce voltage, can produce light, can produce anything. So the idea is that light can excite materials, and then we want to see how the materials, the electrons in those materials behave. So what we do is try to build a better microscope. And everyone's idea is familiar, everyone's familiar with the idea of scientists building better microscopes. Some people actually build microscopes. What we do is we build what you might say are clocks. We build optical clocks to monitor the motion of electrons. And the clocks that we use are lasers which produce very short pulses of light. So we build these lasers, we design these clocks, we invent new physics, we invent new engineering, and we come up with clocks that can make pulses of light that are about on the order of 10 quadrillionths of a second long. That's, uh, that's 10 to the minus 14 seconds, which is to the age of um, 
of, of I think, uh, I, I don't remember all these analogies, but they become astronomical. It's like one minute is to the age of the universe. But these are amongst the shortest events that were ever created. And the field that I work in, which is called ultra-fast laser science, the objective is to create the shortest pulses. Previously, it was a millionth of a second. Then it was a billionth of a second. Then it was a trillionth of a second. Then it's a quadrillionth of a second. So we keep trying to push it so we can see faster and faster things. And that's the objective of our, of our research, to see the fastest possible events of how electrons move in energetic materials that might make our world a better place. Very interesting. Thank you. That was, that was a very nice, uh, you know, broad explanation. So I've got several places I want to go. Number one, so as you're talking about how small, you know, the nano level at which, you know, the unit of analysis that you operate, the first thing that came to mind is Richard Dawkins' middle world. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. So he basically, are you familiar with it? Do you, do no, you know, no. no. So he, Richard Dawkins basically argued that a lot of the difficulties that people have in understanding certain scientific phenomena is that they don't operate on the scale that the human brain has evolved to understand, right? So if you look at uh, at the cosmological level, I mean, what does 16 billion light years away mean, right? I mean, our, your brain and mine, I mean, yes, we understand it now theoretically, but, but in terms of our folk psychology, we certainly don't know what the hell that means. Of course, then at the nano level, you can argue the same thing, right? I mean, when you're talking about quadril- quadrillion of a second and so on, well, I mean, our brain doesn't... So does it make it more difficult for you to study what you study because you are violating Richard Dawkins' middle world? Does, does that make sense? Do you get what I, I mean? That makes sense. And I have a similar idea of that middle world idea that I uh, learned from Richard Feynman, one of the greatest of all time. And uh, you're talking about my heroes. Of course, Feynman was a hero, not just because he was a great scientist, but he was just a great individual and, a, and, and, and truly one of these remarkable human beings. So one of the things that Feynman taught us is that if you don't understand quantum mechanics, you're not supposed to get hot and bothered about it because you're not supposed to understand it. We humans were meant to understand humans and animals and things on the human length scale and time scale and energy scale. We're not meant to understand black holes and electrons. Those are not how our brain was meant to function. And I know you and Jordan talk about things like this, where our brains have certain capacities for intuitive reasoning and intuitive feeling and where we're comfortable and where things make sense to us and things like the extremes of nature don't make sense to us so we have to get used to the fact that it's nonsensical quantum mechanics i think all the greatest quantum mechanics will tell you if you if you think you understand quantum exactly understand it because there's some things that just don't make sense it's so weird but if you calculate it you get the right answers yeah i've actually used the if you think you understand quantum mechanics you don't that, that i think that's a Feynman quote I, I I discuss it, I think I quoted in The Consuming Instinct, one of my uh, books in 2011. By the way, the re- one of the reasons I love Richard Feynman, uh, I don't know if you saw, I put out a clip yesterday. Is that what you were referring to? Did you see my clip from yesterday? No? I'm not sure. Okay, uh, I put out a clip uh, on, my, on my channel where I just tried to look at all of the different biographies that I have in my personal library. I have this huge personal library, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books, many of which I've read, many of which I'm upset that I still haven't read. And I decided to just focus on biographies of great, you know, people and just kind of go through them as a, as a, as a clip just to, and then, and then say a couple of things about each of the guys in question that was, and of course, Richard Feynman came up uh, and I referred to the, the, the cute book, 
published many years ago, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. What I loved about him there is that he had a very playful attitude mindset, which is something that I actually discuss in my next book where I talk about life as a playground. In other words, the, the mere fact that the fact that you're a scientist doesn't mean you have to be this austere, always serious. Science is play, no? I think that's exactly the case. And uh, I know that, for example, Richard Feynman had a competitor who was a very austere, serious scientist by the name of Julian Schwinger. And apparently he was really dry and detached and everyone was afraid of him because he was the smartest person in the room other than Feynman. But Feynman was a barrel of monkeys and a lot of scientists are like that. So I think my own supervisors were like that and they were often adventurous people. My postdoctoral supervisor was, his view of going through nature was slashing through with a machete, going through the woods, hopping from subject to subject. And that inspired me as a young scientist to hopefully do the same. But I say that as a scientist, you get to be a kid your whole life. Exactly. You get to ask why and all the things that kids ask about nature, you continue to ask and that's an incredible pleasure. And because of that, you begin to ask questions about the world itself. And this is where we often get into trouble, but we shouldn't get into trouble as scientists. We're reasonably bright people. We can try to work our way through things. So let me try and work our way through understanding of humans or society or other things like that. And there are some scientists who do try to do that, who do try to make some contributions. And I would like to do that too. I think there's others that are interested in making contributions to the human sphere because we scientists aren't just dummies who know how to crunch numbers. We actually know things about how the world works. And we'd like to be able to use that to hopefully introduce more reason and principles to the world. Well, I, I mean, I guess in your answer, you're referring to something that I talk about in uh, The Parasitic Mind, where I talk about you know professors who are stay-in-your-lane professors versus those who you know navigate through many different intellectual landscapes. And as I'm, I'm sure you know, having known each other now for many years, I'm certainly not a stay-in-your-lane professor in, in several ways, right? Number one, I'm not a stay-in-your-lane professor in my academic career, meaning that I don't only publish in one discipline. If, 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 if there were a way for my research interests and yours to combine, uh, I, today I can't see how, but if there were, uh, I'd be happy to jump on board, if only because it tickles my intellectual curiosity, right? Right. So I've published in medicine, I've published in bibliometrics, in evolutionary psychology, in business, and in, in economics. Uh, now, that usually in, in, in the way science mets out its uh, accolades is viewed with derision because, you know, you're being flighty. You're not a focused person. You, you don't have an, an integrated body of research. I was actually told that by one university in Southern California that was very keen on hiring me. And I had prepared a talk where I was demonstrating all of the different areas where I have applied evolutionary theory in my work. And to them, that was a detriment. I should be sort of a plus epsilon guy, right? You do one study, then you tweak something. Now, I understand that, you, that it's important to be a specialized uh, you know, academic, but it's also good to be a broad thinker. Is there a way that we can alter the reward mechanism so that the sort of irreverent interdisciplinarians can be given their due credit? I don't know how we could do that. I mean, I certainly, I, I don't, part of the reason why we're here talking is how to manage science, that, the enterprise of science. And I don't know how we could encourage people to become more adventurous in their science, except that maybe 
there may be fewer barriers in grant proposals to say I have to have preliminary results and things like that. One of the things that happens in grant proposals now that at least I'm a senior person, you write proposals for things you've already done. <laughs> right. And you get funded and then you have to write about it and you have to talk about it. But nonetheless, if you're a new person, then they give you some, they give you some, they did their grants for new people because you haven't done anything yet. But if you're an older person or senior person and you want to switch out to a new field, that might be a difficulty and I don't know how to do that. I mean, I do know, as I said, my, my postdoctoral supervisor, Paul Barbara, was very famous for moving around from one field to the next. And I tend to like that as well. So as a case in point, my area of work spans chemistry, physics, electrical engineering. I publish in chemistry, physics, and engineering journals. Uh, interestingly, I like to say that my group is filled with chemists, physicists, and engineers, and that makes it diverse, but apparently that doesn't. <laughs> well, ho hold off on the die religion. That's a lot of another topic. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, topic. I'm we'll, very proud of the fact that we publish in diverse areas. We have diverse people intellectually, and we hop from physics to chemistry to engineering at the drop of a hat just because whatever might be interesting, we're going to do it. At one point, you were talking about, uh, you know, I guess you're at the cusp of material science and so on. And so the thing that kind of cued in my head was a field that's very dear, near and dear to my heart precisely because it ep epitomizes interdisciplinarity. And that's the field of biomimicry. Are you familiar with that field, Pat? I'm not. Biomimicry is, a, is a, it's just a brilliant idea. Well, at least for an evolutionist, it's self-evident. Biomimicry is, is the idea that, look, nature is the greatest product designer that the world's ever known. It's not Steve Jobs. It's not Bill Gates, right? Nature has produced these exquisite solutions to these important evolutionary problems. So what we can try to do is go out there in nature, study some solution of nature, and I'll come in a second to the material science example, and then mimic it synthetically in the lab. So mm -hmm. now let me link it to, to material science. So the gecko's feet, a gecko you know, goes in all of these very, very slippery surfaces, but yet the, the, his ability to stick to those surfaces is truly legendary. I mean, it's unbelievable. So what material scientists have done at the nano level, perhaps not as nano as what you do, but still nano, maybe in the one millionth range, uh, right. they've been able to try to understand the molecular structure of the gecko's feet that come through a long evolutionary process to try to then synthesize it. I can try to take the silk of a spider, which is stronger in terms of what it can hold than steel, and try to find a way to synthetically produce that in, at a mass level so that I can, instead of be using steel, I could be using silk. So those are examples of the applications of biomimicry. Is there any possibility for what I just said to be linked to your field? Or, or Oh, very much. That's a huge field. So I wasn't familiar with the terminology, but certainly there's a lot of people that do biologically inspired material science. The one that came to mind initially is I think mollusks or abalone have some type of shell. Exactly. That if you hit it with a hammer, it won't break because it's strong yet resilient. And so there's a chemist that I know at MIT whose job is to make 
those sort to, to learn from that nature and to develop armor. So she's funded by the U.S. Department of Soldier Nanotechnology, which I thought that's fantastic. Love it. Love like, it. It sounds like something out of the space age, but Soldier Nanotechnology is making armor based upon abalone shells or something like that because nature has figured out how to do things. Nature has figured out how to do photosynthesis, and we try to learn from photosynthesis. So there's material scientists trying to make artificial leaves and things like that. Oh, and, I love it. Uh, and so there's all these sort of ways in which one tries to gain inspiration from nature to come up with new materials. And that's certainly much of what's happening now. So I, I guess as a segue to, you know, the, the original main reason that we, I wanted to chat with you, although I'm, I'm just enjoying talking about all this kind of geeky stuff. Uh, look, there, there is a, there's often a distinction between the social sciences and the natural sciences. And I, I, it's going to lead to what recently happened to you in a second. Where people think, oh, you know, your chemistry, oh, that, that seems serious. That, that's sciencey. Physics, oh, that's sciencey. But, you know, sociology, that, that, you know, that's not science, right? And what I always tell people, and I've, I've been a big critic of, of many of those fields, as you know. I mean, certainly the parasitic mind, I take many of these fields to task. But I take them to task not because epistemologically they are less scientific. It's because of the way that they are practiced they are prone to being parasitized by idea pathogens, by ideologies, right? So a sociologist, I would argue, as Auguste Comte argued several hundred years ago, could be argued as at the hierarchy of the sciences. It's a lot more difficult to study complex systems involving human beings than it is to study the crystallography of some diamond. But, so, so, so there's nothing unscientific about studying psychology or studying sociology or studying, look, you could study history from a very uh, scientific perspective. You could study English literature, right? Why is it that certain literary narratives occur using common themes around the world? You could test that hypothesis using very fancy quantitative content analysis tools. So it's not the discipline that makes it unscientific. It's the practice where you, you depart from applying the scientific method. So what I talk about in the parasitic mind is that many of these disciplines have been completely parasitized by these idea pathogens, one of which is diversity, inclusion, and equity. So we're going to come in a second to your point. Now, many of my colleagues, you know, I've been a professor for almost 30 years. When I was ringing the alarm about this for several decades now, they would say, yeah, but this, this bullshit is only going to happen in the esoteric humanities. It's only going to happen in the social sciences. It's never coming for us in it's the. It's never coming for us. It's never coming for us in math, in physics, in chemistry. And my answer was, watch. I'll be the guy in the back folding my arms, saying, "I'm the one who told you so." Well, Pat, I'm the one who told you so. It's come yes. for you. Tell us your story. It's come for us, and uh, I was actually I, I participate in this. Uh, classical liberalism seminar series at Stanford University. I don't know, you've been invited to speak yeah. to. And it's been an absolute pleasure to see what transpires there in terms of real academic scholarship and discussion in a closed door environment amongst intelligent people. One of the speakers there is a guy by the name of John Ellis, who's an emeritus professor of, I think, German language in a UC school. But nonetheless, he gave this he, he gave this fantastic description about the academic meltdown that could only be equaled by our colleague Philip Salzman. And John Ellis was saying how he's been uh, ringing this alarm bell about how people in the, the grievance studies have been coming for academia since the 1980s. He, he pinpointed it at 1988. 
And I also pinpointed it as 1988 when I was an 18-year-old college freshman, and I thought my friends were going insane. I thought, I, I don't know if I can be friends with you anymore. I can't talk to you anymore. And the answer is, I don't want to be friends with you anymore, and I don't want to talk to you anymore because you people are insane. Um, but those were the people who were my 18-year-old friends in 1988 who went on to become writers for the from the wall from the Washington Post or New York Times, they became diversity deans, and now they're the ones who are creating all these problems is the way I see it. But I think the way, the, where I, tell me, tell me your question again. I think I was talking yeah, about Yeah, no, well, what I was, what I, I give you that whole kind of long intro segue because my point was all the people, all the naysayers who said the, oh, yeah, the, the natural sciences are just naturally immunized against this nonsense. We're, we're not and naturally immunized, and there's a historical precedent for this. The great historical precedent is communist science, where the communists, of course, Lysenkoism science was done. Uh, Lysenkoism is the most famous example, and for the readers who aren't familiar with it, there was capitalist biology practiced by those dastardly people in the West. And there was communist biology practiced by the social justice warriors in the Soviet Union. The head of biology or agronomy or something to that effect in the Soviet Union was a man by the name of Trofim Lysenko. And Trofim Lysenko said all of his junior scientists should not be able to do the modern capitalist science. Instead, we have our own. And that's going to teach us how to grow wheat. And they didn't grow wheat. And uh, how many people starved? 20 million people yeah. starved to death. And they cannibalized each other. So that is Soviet science. And there's also Nazi science. And I know Dorian Abbott wrote about Nazis influencing science in his Newsweek article. And whenever you mention Nazism, woke Americans say, oh, you can't ever mention Nazism because it was it was this horrible battle between Darth Vader and the good people. And it'll never happen again. There's not, nothing like it again. There's nothing to be learned from it instead of actually trying to learn from the rise of Nazism. So one aims to learn from the rise of Nazism and the American woke leftists don't seem to want to learn from that for some reason or another. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Christian. I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm an independent contractor who wants to understand human beer. And I think we can learn a lot from the rise of Nazism and communism, how they came for the scientists. So now what's happening, those in the grievance studies have been undergoing their grievance studies since 1988, but they want us. They, they're, they're jealous of us. And there's nothing worse than jealousy combined with collectivism. And I think that's what seemed to happen in Nazism and communism is jealousy combined with collectivism. By us, you mean the natural scientists or you mean academics or who, who's us? Well, I think us is the natural scientists. They're coming for us now because we've been asleep at the wheel for 20, 30 years. And uh, as John Ellis was saying, he was trying to get the scientists involved and they wouldn't listen for 20 years. And I know this because for the last five to 10 years, I've been trying to get scientists involved, whether at McGill or elsewhere. A lot of people tell me to piss off because they simply want to improve their signal to noise. Right. They want to get a better instrument. They want to get another paper done. And then I say, what's going to happen when they come for us? Because they're yeah. coming for us. And now five years later in the year 2011 or 2021, all my colleagues in science or in physical science are saying, oh, yes, Pat, you were right. You're right. Just like Gad was right. Just like Jordan was right. They're finally saying you guys were right. Yeah. Come for us. And we can't function this way. We can't function this way. Now, what is it that you think makes you and, and, and I want to drill down to your specific two grant rejections in a second for those for the people who don't know uh, about the story. But before I do that, what is it that you think makes you or me, you know, different in that? 
we're not willing to be stay in your lane and build the next better instrument or only worry about our next paper. What is it that makes us say, no, no, I can't. Is it just the random combination of genes that constitute our personhood make us allergic to bullshit and therefore we intervene? I think it's a little bit of that. I think a lot of it is genetic, to be honest, because I was like this when I was a little kid, when I was six years old. So I, I got into a lot of trouble when I was six years old by saying exactly what I thought and not, and not, not dealing with bullshit. So that's continued, and that's part of the reason why I'm a scientist today. My grandfathers were like this. They were dissidents in India and in the, in the, in, in the uh, independence movement, so maybe it runs in the family. But there's also people like this where I think of the story of the founding of Intel. Intel was founded by two farm boys who uh, you know, were just good at building, good at math, good at physics. They went to MIT. They founded Intel, but they couldn't run the company because they weren't tough enough to run the company. You know who they had to have run the company is Andy Grove. Andy Grove, I, I'm, I'm assuming I, he's a Hungarian Jew who had to escape first the communists, then the Holocaust, or vice versa. I lose track of the details, but he had to deal with both the Holocaust and communism. He escaped Hungary with his older brother, came to America, I think went to City College of New York, as, as the Jewish immigrants tend to do. Then he went to Berkeley, got his PhD in physical chemistry. But Andy Grove is the toughest nut in the world. As they said of Andy Grove, he still doesn't have his own office at Intel, and he's a founder. He still waits in line at the lunch counter with everyone else. And they said Andy Grove would fire his mother if his mother was underperforming because that's <laughs> Andy Grove. And that's the point. It's perhaps you and I are like this as well, where we had experiences that would make us not want to stick in lanes, that would make us want to stand up for the principles of other people. You've seen experiences in, in your home country. I've seen experiences in my adopted country. And even in my home country, when I go back to visit, that make me feel like this is just not the world I want to live in. So I've seen a lot of things and I feel like I want to be able to learn and act upon the things that I've seen that are a problem in the world and hopefully make things a better place as opposed to sitting by and being an innocent bystander. One of the things is I was victimized a lot as a child, but rather than view myself as a victim, I'd rather view myself as empowered to be able to help other people and stand up and be resilient. So I really have no use for the modern victimology tendency. and. And perhaps like you, perhaps like others, you know, I've experienced plenty. I don't want to sit here and whine about it. I want to be able to achieve. And so I, I think I'm really at issue with the modern victimism culture that came from grievance studies. Oh, yeah. Sorry, you, 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 you broke up a bit, but I think we got the, the main gist. Uh, don't worry about it, though. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to edit it. Uh, how do the people close around you? I've met your lovely wife uh, and I guess you've met mine. Mine is, is, as a general statement, is, you know, very proud of the things that I do. But once in a while, she said, she, she will say to me, can't you just keep your big mouth shut so we can, you know, live a peaceful life? So I, I have to assume that probably your wife has a sem similar reaction to some of your, uh, but yet I'm, I'd like to think that she's proud of the fact that you are irreverent to all the nonsense, no? Yes, True. I think as my wife says, uh, we talk about this all the time, and I, maybe your wife talks about it with you, which is that no one wants to be married to Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> and having said that, maybe no one wants to be married to Martin Luther King either. I'm not comparing myself to Martin Luther King or Solzhenitsyn. I'm just trying to be a garden variety stand-up guy, and that's not so easy. And so when you do that, you end up becoming... You can become grumpy and irritable, and then it's a, it's a job to not be grumpy and irritable. And I know you do a good job of maintaining a sense of humor in all this process. I struggle with that, so I have to learn how to maintain a sense of humor 
as we see human folly for what it is. And as, he, as Steven Pinker will tell us, we are improving in the long run. We are improving in the long right. run, but occasionally we do take steps back and one worries about those steps back. And I tend to worry about those steps back. And my wife says, oh, Pat, why are you so irritable all the time? No one wants to live with Solzhenitsyn. And I said, fine, I'll try not to be Solzhenitsyn anymore. I'll try and get back to uh, you know, something else. <laughs> but the, I do feel like there's major things happening in the West and academia is the root of it. And like you, I've been predicting this for decades now. And I feel like we have to stand up and do something. I was not this bothered five or 10 years ago. Five or 10 years ago, I was just a garden variety scientist minding my own business. But I think it was exactly in the year 2010 where I realized something bad was about to happen, that chickens were coming home to roost, which is that the people who were in the student unions at McGill in 2010 began using the phrase, check your privilege. Right. And when I saw that happen, I knew that that was immediately a plan to dehumanize other people. Would it apply to me? I don't know, because Indians don't really count as minorities. Would it apply to you? Jews don't really count as minorities because there's no such thing as anti-Semitism anyway, right? <laughs> so I, I wondered how would I count in this process. I wondered how my sons would count in this process. My sons are half Caucasian. My wife is Caucasian. And my sons actually probably look like they could pass for Lebanese now. You know, so <laughs> what that means is in the winter they look white. You're right. What does that mean? Well, I'm I'm losing I'm losing my 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 victimology scores by the second because in know, as you know in the summer I'm super dark I'm as dark as you if not darker and then suddenly I turned like uh, Casper the Snow White uh, guy the the in, ghost in, in, in winter you you could be you could be pursued as being a white supremacist <laughs> yes exactly and and that's it's the, I, I'm thinking also of my sons here and you know why shouldn't they be equally human it's 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 ridiculous how how people have put people into bins based upon so-called privilege when privilege according to the american express commercial is something you earn <laughs> like membership to the faculty club i have a membership to the faculty club thank you i've worked hard for it i'm going to use it that's a privilege i have an american express card that's a privilege you know that's fine i'm a 50 year old guy i have those privileges and that's fine it's not because i'm brown or white or male or female or gay or straight those don't mean anything Right now, let's let's go to uh, the story that was covered by the National Post. Now, the, well, why don't you tell us what it is, and then I'll 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 weigh in. Go tell sure us thing, what happened. Sure yeah. Well, I was talking with my colleague uh, uh, Brad Civic, with whom you had dinner as well, yeah. and uh, we were talking about how these programs of diversity, inclusion, and equity (DIE) as I call them have come into play in the last few years. Five years ago, there might have been discussion of DIE. Three years ago, you might be suggested to include it. Two years ago, you would need to include it. One year ago, if you don't include it and they don't like what you've written, you will not even be viewed as suitable for external scientific review. Throughout science history of the modern era, governments give money to scientific agencies and the scientific agencies distribute the money to other scientists based upon anonymous peer review. It's only based upon science. It's not based upon anything else. In the last one to two years, the Canadian government and probably the American government too has made diversity, inclusion and equity part of the application process. So what does that mean? What that means in practice is I wrote a 15 page proposal of which I wrote half a page on diversity. 
I mean, that's half a page out of 15 pages because the other 15 pages were about science and how I'm going to create a high-tech corridor for Canada and improve the economy. That's what I thought they would care about. I also mentioned that, you know, I have my lived experience. My group looks like the model UN. I have people of all walks of life, and I encourage people of all walks of life. And they all do survive, not, not survive, they flourish. And I thought, well, more, what more can I write? I've literally had people of all walks of my life come through my lab and flourish. But the answer is apparently I didn't give enough details because you have to give details of how you're only going to give selective empathy to women, certain minorities, and sexual minorities. It will not be to Jews. It will not be to Asians. It will not be to men. It will not be to a poor white guy who grew up in the Ozarks and you know maybe had his parents abandon him. It won't be for that person. It'll only be for certain groups of people. So I couldn't in good faith write that. So I tried to write as best I could to say I'm an egalitarian who wants to help people equally and I have already done that. Well, I also can't lie. I mean, the last time I lied was when I stole the candy from the cookie jar when I was six years old and I haven't lied since then. And as a principled future scientist, I couldn't lie about ethics or the things I hold most deeply. So the thing I hold most deeply is the principle of human equality of all people and all lives being equal. So how could I lie about that? So I tried to give the best explanation I could a year ago for one proposal, and that proposal was denied based upon failing the DIE test. It did not go to scientific review. I was very frustrated by that. And then Jordan Peterson wrote about that in the National Post where he made me anonymous because I didn't want to get fully canceled yet. Well, now, about a month ago, I had a second proposal from NSERC, Natural Sciences Research and Engineering Council. Uh, I uh, had that proposal not funded based upon DIE again. And they said we also did not even look at the science. So, so far, I've had the last two Government of Canada proposals not get reviewed due to science. In contrast, my most recent funded proposal was from the Sony Research Corporation, Global Research Corporation. They never asked for anything involving diversity, inclusion, or equity. They wanted the best science possible. And I'm the first person in McGill history to be funded by Sony and the third person in all of Canada to be funded by Sony. So I got this very lucrative award because it was just about the science. Amazing. Uh, I've, I've generated over $7 million in funding since 2003, so I've created plenty of funding. I know how to write proposals, but apparently I don't know how to write a proposal where I have to lie about my most deeply held beliefs that all humans should be treated as equal. And because of that, I've been denied funding twice in a row by the federal government. Yeah, you know, the, when, the, when the first uh, the rejection happened, and, and I was aware of it, I, I've discussed it on you know several venues, but of course I never wanted to identify who it was. So you might have even seen me where I say things like, "Oh, you know, a colleague of mine." And so I'm in a sense I'm relieved that now you're out in the open because uh, you know it was a it was a secret that was I mean it wasn't a secret in that I was sharing your story, but without right. ever identifying who you are. And I think ultimately there is power in you having identified yourself, not only because you know. Let's stand up tall and, and say things as they are. But also, if someone like you who's got the non-white supremacist markers, right? You, you're you from India. Yes. So I, we understand all white people are Nazis and white supremacists, but but you're not white. Although now we found out, by the way, that you could be suffering from multiracial whiteness. That's why Larry Elder, a black man, is, the, black, is the black face of white supremacy. So I'm not yeah. even sure of what I'm saying because... What I mean by that is the fact that you are, quote, a person of color 
doesn't absolve you from being attacked as a white supremacist, correct? It doesn't at all. And I remember in 2017, I was re- I was interviewed by a, a student in the U.S., a college student, based upon my Facebook posts. And he was very interested. And he said, you sound like an interesting professor. And he interviewed me. And I only would do so under conditions of anonymity. And uh, that was for a magazine that was called All Think, which then became Aereo Magazine, which is a very good magazine. Yeah. Nonetheless, I was anonymous because I didn't want to be canceled by students, especially because at that time I didn't want to go through the headache of becoming the next Jordan Peterson. And and, and as my colleagues were saying, do you want to be the next Jordan Peterson? I said, no, I just want to be left alone and do science. And at that time, I, I, I just didn't want to have the rigmarole of it all. But now that they've come for me twice... And I think I realized that I have to make a stand. I can make a stand. And there's the thing about the oppression Olympics that you and I both talk about. And I was talking about that with some uh, physics students who I was sitting on the PhD committee for. And most of them are white men. Most of my group are white men, young white 25-year-old guys. So most of physical chemistry and physics is done on the backs of, you know, young white men. And so they're treated not like human beings. And I was trying to explain to them that I'm interested in treating them like human beings as well. And that's where we're coming from. But the idea of being a white supremacist, I've been called a white supremacist since since college by white people. So it's typically woke white people who say, you have internalized racism. Why don't you hate white people in this much? Why don't you love black people more? So you have to hate black, you have to hate white people and love black people and view that uh, Asians and Hispanics don't exist. as well so it's this very weird binary it's ironically black and white they take this black and white view so in the context of the oppression olympics which you and i talk about what we don't want to play is you could have the skin color but also not suffered you could have lived in the rich expensive area area of los angeles for black people and then gone to ivy leagues and you've never suffered you never experienced racism and that's probably a large number of the black people who go to ivy leagues are wealthy just like the large number of white people who go there are wealthy so you might not have experienced racism. Maybe you're wealthy, you have, but just because you have a certain skin color doesn't mean you experience racism. Just because you're a woman or a man doesn't mean you've experienced sexism or, or homophobia or whatever it might be. It's highly specific. So many of my Indian friends did not experience racism. I did. I experienced it apparently quite egregiously. I didn't think anything of it because when you're a young kid, you don't really notice things. You just have your own life and you muck about and you go about your business and you, you, know, you build your model airplanes and you go about your life. But that's about all. I didn't really think about it. And until one day when I had my own kids, I realized, oh, boy, my life is probably very different than my kid's life. Now, uh, do, do, that's okay. That's fine. And I think my own experiences make me willing to stand up to defend other people and make me unwilling to be an innocent a bystander to injustice. I, I've experienced much injustice in my life, and I don't want to let other people suffer that way. So that's what drives me. How has it been at McGill? So let's break it up. So for example, within your own department, uh, do people pretend you're invisible and they ignore you? Or do they send you secret uh, secretively uh, some email saying hey way to go pat but please don't mention my name that's usually what i get from everybody uh, i get you... secret emails okay and now but how much overt hostility are you getting from the different members of your institution whether it be the administrators whether it be the students whether it be other faculty members do you get a lot of overt hostility levied against you uh, I have had a hostility levied against me from students back when my Facebook and my Instagram was public. 
now they're both private, but I've had students complain to me, uh, complain to the chair, complain to the dean, write on my student evaluations, go to ratemyprofessors.com to, uh, to, to, to slander me. One in particular that was interesting is I had a student write on my teaching evaluation for an undergraduate course, Professor Kambampati has an Instagram page which has problematic statements. He says things like there's no patriarchy and there's no male privilege because he mentions things like the male suicide rate and the homelessness rates and things like that. And uh, he also makes fun of woke people, so forth. So, and then she goes on to say, on the one hand, I do believe in freedom of speech, but on the other hand, I believe I have a right to not be taught by a professor who offends me like this. Wow. So I love it when they say, on the one hand, I yeah. believe in freedom of speech, but... So here's what happened. So that's so that was an example of what was in my teaching evaluation. And I remember at the time that was very traumatizing because myself, having grown up as a brown man, I know I'm low man on the totem pole. I'm not a black man, but the lowest lowest man on the totem pole. I'm a brown man. I'm pretty I'm pretty low. But having said that, I'm this was clearly a, a young woman who wrote this. I'm assuming she was a wealthy Caucasian woman who wrote this, who's had every privilege given to her in her life, and that privilege allows her to complain about me because I said something about all lives being equal. It's, it's just, so, it's, it's unbelievable. So that's insane, and that happened a lot from students. And so then I made my social media accounts private, so that doesn't happen anymore. But as a case in point, I looked, so people had told me about, about how to, I should look on Reddit to see how the story on the National Post looks. The Reddit Canada, everyone is saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, because they're people of all walks of life. The Reddit McGill is people saying, why is this guy doing this? He must be some white supremacist. Uh, he must be all these things are questioning my motives. They're saying I tried to tank my own application so I could whine about cancel culture and wokeism. And I'm thinking, why would I try to tank my own career? I've been at this for decades now. I've raised $7 million in funding. I have one of the most sophisticated laser labs on Earth, literally on Earth, and I would do anything to keep it running. So why would I... Why would I sabotage myself? But uh, and I think what happens is I talked about this with my own with, with my mother as well, and I think as she said, she she her 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 parents were the Indian Civil War revolutionaries. My mother runs a school for poor children in India. She walks the walk, and the whole point that she mentioned, we all mentioned, is young people don't haven't done anything yet. They haven't walked the walk, so they have to talk the talk and signal their virtue. And they're very interested in signaling their virtue and signaling who's not virtuous and judging us based upon our actions. But those of us who are adults, we've actually helped people. And it's not what you believe. It's what you do as an individual to help another individual. That's what counts. And the young people don't live in that world. So as a result, they want to cancel you and call you out and say you're immoral or amoral or whatever it might be, which is why I wanted to use the idea that to fight D.I.E. could actually be a moral argument or an ethical argument, not just a dry intellectual one. So in the National Post article, I wanted to make that case that there's a moral argument to supporting equality, classical liberalism and not equity. Yeah, but I mean, from in the public arena, notwithstanding that, you know, I received thousands of emails from professors privately saying, you know, you're the man and so on in the public sphere. You're, you still can count probably on one or two hands the number of, you know, very high profile professors who are fighting against all of these idea pathogens. Do you foresee a looming tipping point 
where the critical mass of silent majority will suddenly break out of their apathy and cowardice and will stand up and will get rid of this garbage? Or do you see the dark days being for much longer? That's a good question. I don't have an answer to that. I tend to be more optimistic than my colleagues because I noticed this problem five or ten years ago, whereas my colleagues only noticed the problem one or two years ago. So they're just noticing it. I see the resistance rising. And I think one of the points I was making both to you and Jordan is that to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only physical scientist I know who's standing up against this DIE culture and the woke culture. I don't have a podcast. I don't have anything else like that, but I'd like to start writing more. But the fact of the matter is most of us are busy trying to get better signal to noise or be able to build a better bike microscope. So everyone I know has been looking the other way except for me and a few other people. There's a small number of people who are actually paying attention to the problem, and now people are starting to listen to us. As a case in point, um, I have interactions with the physics department and the chemistry department here at McGill. The physics department has been taken over by woke social justice warriors. They have an equality library featuring feminist book readings and all these sorts of things involving uh, microaggressions and God knows what else. So what happened in the physics department is a small number of vocal people, as it always is, started talking and said, we can't have you old, straight, white men giving you your opinions about equality and physics and, and everyone, every man for himself. And the old white men in physics were silent because they were shamed into silence. And I'm not going to let that happen. And as a result, I in chemistry have made it clear to every one of my colleagues that I'm against this. And if you want to fight me, you better fight because I'm not going to back down. We're going to debate this one way or another. And I will not call. I will not back down at all. So and I won't be I won't be shamed. And so I think that's why half my department knows that if we try to bring any wokeism to our department, they're going to handle they're going to have to handle me. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, you're you're exhibiting all of the honey badger mindset that I keep preaching for people to uh, to adopt. And but of course, to, for you, it comes uh, naturally. Uh, look, uh, I've noticed that there is no nook or, or cranny where these idea pathogens don't find a way to infiltrate themselves. Right. So, I mean, look, the SoCal story of 1996, where we had a physicist do, I mean, for, I'm just going to repeat it. I know you're familiar with it, but for the viewers who may not know, Alan SoCal is a, is a, a physicist who uh, wrote a, a, you know, a, a fake uh, paper where he was talking about the social construction of gravity and so on. And the postmodernist journal was very, very keen on accepting the paper because that gave an imprimatur to their nonsense, right? He was a physicist who was on board with us. And of course, it turned out to be a hoax paper. And so, you know, in 1996, we could have stood up and said, look, this is coming for all of us. So, so never, right. Right, we, we, we had, we had all of the warning signs for years, right? I mean, I trace many of these idea pathogens to 40, 50, 80 years ago. So for example, cultural relativism or biophobia, the, the mm -hmm. fact that you don't want to use biology to explain human affairs goes back all the way to Franz Boas the cultural anthropologist, and then all of the students that he trained, like Margaret Mead, where they were trying to preclude the misapplication of biology because it had been misused for all sorts of nefarious uh, reasons, whether it be subsequently the Nazis, right? Oh, it's a Darwinian struggle between the races. We're the Nazis. We went out. So what's wrong with killing the Jews? Hey, that's Darwinian. I'm glad that you mentioned Franz Boas because I love to mention Franz Boas because who, was the, who were the anthropologists before Boas? 
the racists. Yeah, right, exactly. Hispanic racists. I mean, what, what, what people nowadays don't get is there were actual people called capital R racists. Yeah. You got hired in racism. You got tenured in racism. You could publish in Science and Nature magazine on racism studies, just like genderism studies, which is I draw a parallel to racism yeah. and genderism yeah. studies. All these isms are, are, are the result of these grievance studies where they create isms instead of sound ways of thinking about the world. So the racism gave rise to Nazism and the Ku Klux Klan in America and Germany, but, but, but that was progressive intellectual racism. And Franz Boas was the first person around 1900 to say, now we have this cultural relativism, and now we don't buy cultural relativism, we have something else. So that's the progression but, of anthropology, but, but people forget that racism was an actual thing to which you aspired. You aspired to be a racist. You aspired to be a fascist. You aspired to be a Nazi. You wanted to be these things. They aren't just insults. But, so being an anti-racist, I would say, is equivalent to being a racist all over again. You're intellectualizing this, this idea and turning every everyone into a bin and a caricature of themselves. So I view Ibrahim X. Kendi and anti-racists as just modern version of racists from last century. Yeah, but just, just to be clear, because you, you're, you're putting a... You, you, in your temporal progression, you're making it seem as though Franz Boas is kind of the, the savior against the racist science. I, I don't want to put him in such a favorable light because my point is that in the pursuit of a original noble goal, which in the case of Franz Boas, he's trying to get rid of all the racist stuff, you then end up murdering truth in the service of, of that noble goal. That's, that's basically the argument that I use in explaining the commonality across all of the idea pathogens that I cover in the parasitic mind, right? So for example, transgender activists in the pursuit of creating a world free of transgender bigotry, we will now promulgate ideas that are so uh, comical that they defy logic, right? Uh, equity feminism was a great idea. We should be equal under the law, men and women. Militant feminism then metamorphosizes into complete bullshit because it says in the service of that original goal, we should have an indistinguishable two sexes, right? Because then that will squash the patriarchy. So right. what all of these idea pathogens have in common is they start off with a noble goal, that you and I can agree with. We don't want to have racist science, but never in the service of that noble goal do you murder, uh, what, what did you call it? Quadrillion? What did you call the after, was it quadrillion? Quadrillion? What was the? Quadrillion. Yeah. You don't, you don't murder one quadrillionth of the truth because when it comes to truth, you have to be deontological, right? Truth mm -hmm. with a capital T is not a consequentialist goal, right? Be but most of the blue-haired people say, well, if I murder and rape truth, but it advances this noble jo social justice goal, then so be it. Does that make sense? Oh, that very much makes sense. And I think the thing that we have to be most vigilant about, not as scientists, but also as academics and as just general people in the world, is that we have imperfect knowledge and the best way to deal with imperfect knowledge is to gather as much data and evidence as you can and by listening and interacting with other people, especially people with whom you disagree. I know Jordan had this great quote about uh, how do you, if you interact with people like yourself, you'll never learn anything. By interacting with people different than you, you might learn not to eat that poison berry and you might not die. 
So that's the idea of learning from other people. We have an incomplete set of knowledge, so we shouldn't try to shove our ideas down anyone's throat. We could defend our ideas. We could even attack our own ideas. I attack my own ideas more vigorously than other people do me because someone has to. But that's that's okay. And then we, I want you to attack my ideas too and vice versa. Then we hopefully filter to make better ideas. But we're not supposed to defend things like a religion. We're not supposed to defend beliefs. We're not supposed to hold isms. And by the holding of the isms, that's how academia has destroyed itself. And by destroying itself, that created the impetus to destroy children's ability to think. So that's why the children, I feel like nowadays, as Thomas Sowell would say, can only feel, they can only emote, they can't right. reason anymore. But I th- and that happened sometime in the last 20 years. I think, you, I think it was you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I think in a private conversation you had told me that many of your kids' generation is kind of catching up to some of that, you know, are reading my books or Jordan and yes. so on. And so that, so that the, the, the incoming new folks are kind of anti-blue-haired people. Is that, is that, you still stand by that I, statement? I'm finding that. So my kids are 15 and 17. And even when they were younger, like 12 and 14, they were already anti-SJWs. And they already know about Gadsad and Jordan Peterson, and uh, and on their own they watch on YouTube. They they know about uh, Sargon of Akkad. They know about all these people. Uh, and my kids are like me. They're independent thinkers. They question, and and they don't like these social justice warriors. And when they get into fights with each other, little little wrestling matches, they end up saying, "You're triggering me. You're microaggressing me." And as they're wrestling each other, because it sounds silly, they're just making a display of how silly it says to sound. You're triggering me or microaggressing me. So my high school kids, my my kids who are in high school, make fun of the blue-haired university students. Fantastic. Well, I also think that those blue-haired university students are dissipating, and I see that amongst the current generation because as a professor, the students keep coming in, and what you see are the students in the year 2020 seem quite different than the students in 2014 or 15. In 2014 or 15, that's when we had all those riots taking place, yeah. whether Janice Fiamengo, uh, Jordan Peterson, any number of other people, Heather McDonald. A lot of people would cause riots. I'm surprised, Gad, you're the only one who didn't cause a riot. Can you explain this to us, doctor? Is it, is it my my unbelievable charm? Is it my beautiful smile? What is I it that it makes like me... you're always about to start laughing. It looks like you're always about to start laughing, but no... <laughs> you know, so I, I think that's it. Otherwise, I have no idea why they, why they didn't try to pull the fire alarms for you. I, I'm telling you, you don't know how many people have asked me both publicly and privately, how is it that I can evade what has befallen so many other people who are not nearly as outspoken as me? I think it's a combination of factors, maybe, or maybe it's one of those uh, scientific mysteries that we'll never solve. I think, number one, I certainly, the, the fact that I've got my personal victimology poker score makes it more difficult to come after me number two i think that given the style with which i present you know that i of course i'm 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 fully prepared i've got all the evidence on my side but i also use humor and so on it there's one guy who was talking to me uh his name is robert wright he's a popularizer of evolutionary psychology he invited me on his show a few years ago and at the end of the show, he said, I, I can't remember if it was on tape or off air. He said to me, you know, I came to this conversation with every hope and desire to dislike you. But God damn, it's impossible to dislike you. And so so I think there is a bit of that. Whereas other people who navigate in the sphere that we're talking about right. have a personal style that makes it maybe easier to demonize them. Could that be it? 
Oh, I think so. And I know Jordan comes across as very serious. He seems tormented, where Steven Pinker does not seem tormented. And I always say, how can I channel Steven Pinker? I, I, I want to be not tormented either, so I don't feel like... Although I don't want you to dance the way Steven Pinker did after Joe Biden after Joe Biden won. We, we can't be friends if you dance like this. I understand what you're saying. No Pinker dancing, no, at least not in public. But... Uh, but Jordan seems like he's channeling souls and and he feels the pain. I feel the pain. My wife tells me I feel the pain. And I'm trying to not feel that as much. But uh, uh, I think one of the things that I do, and I tend to not suffer fools gladly, so I tend to be much of a hard ass. And when I come after people, whether it was on Facebook or Instagram or even in uh, emails or whatever it might be or in, or in an article, I definitely don't suffer fools gladly. I take no prisoners and I like to debate. I'm very, 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 very aggressive about it. I'm, a, I'm very aggressive in science and I'm very aggressive in debate. And uh, I'm not going to be for having cocktail conversation, but if it's, cock, if it's not cocktail conversation, if it's a debate, I want to get to the bottom of it and fast. So I think that makes me unlike, so I tend to be very impatient seeming with people, but that's okay. That's one of the reasons why I perhaps shouldn't be you know, on uh, public that much. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you actually, because you and I have chatted in the past where in the past you, you told me privately, I hope you don't mind me saying it now that, that, you know, you're, you've, you've been reticent to come out in public. Whereas maybe now the fact that you got your second rejection that served as sort of the, the triggering point, the impetus for you to, so do you foresee you coming out into the public arena more frequently now or, or, not really. That's not something that interests you. I definitely see myself coming out more frequently. I have been talking with uh, editors at, a, at another newspaper about writing an article about my perspective. And uh, I think when I saw the instances of Dorian Abbott at University of Chicago get witch hunted, and he got witch hunted because he's a straight white male. You're not going to do that to me. And if you try to witch hunt me, I'm going to hunt you back. That's all there is to it. So I, come, come get me. I've suffered worse. Just like you've suffered worse, I've suffered worse. I'm not worried about your little words, you little snowflakes, so I'm coming for you. Um, so I plan on doing more. I plan on doing more, and the question is how. Uh, I want to do more with the McGill-Saths organization and hopefully bring in more people to have discussions of classical liberalism, classical conservatism, free speech, open-mindedness. I'd like to be able to have more of that at the university and bring in, do my part to bring that in. Uh, I do have a list of email email professors that are email scientists all over the world to say we have to get them to do this together and I share my articles with them and share your articles with them and I think I'm just trying to get scientists to 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 not man up person up more and actually do something yeah. so I want scientists to do something instead of just worrying about their damn single noise all day long and I want them to actually say there was this time when we used to care about the Cold War and scientists would stand up against the Cold War and, 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 and arms proliferation and things like that. We can do that again. And we should do that again. And I'm ready to do that. Wonderful. Any, uh, before we wrap it up, uh, Pat, uh, any projects that you're currently working on now? I, I guess your stuff is very technical, so I'm not sure if promoting it is going to make people excited about it. But is there anything, <laughs> you know, you're thinking about writing a book. Is there something that you'd like to promote and use this platform to do so? This is your chance to do so, sir. Well, I've always been threatening to write a book, and I feel like I'll write that book upon retirement. I still have some science to do, but like one of one of our colleagues, Philip Salzman, or like John Ellis, I like the idea of writing these books in retirement, and I think I can offer some value based upon my own perspective. One, being a scientist. Two, having oppression Olympics points coming out in my years. So with the two, I refuse to suffer fools gladly. I refuse to suffer these woke fools gladly. 
Uh, hopefully, I can continue to do more, and we'll see what happens in the coming years. But I also want to work from the inside within the administration at McGill, within the administration at NSERC and the funding agencies to say, hey, maybe we can do better. Maybe we can listen to other people. So. I'm really glad there's people like you and Jordan doing things on the outside, and I hope to do things on the outside and the inside as much as I can, because things have to change and we can't go on like this anymore. Uh, Western civilization is being destroyed by woke ideologues who don't know anything about classical liberalism, democracy, freedom, science, agency and accountability, and how to treat people as equals. Beautifully said, uh, Pat. Uh, it's an honor to call you a friend. Keep doing your stuff. You know that I'm uh, only a few blocks away from you. If you ever need my support, I'll be there in a in a quadrillionth of a second. Uh, thank you so much Sounds for com- thank you so much for coming on. Stay on the line so we can say goodbye offline. I really appreciate talking to you today. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you, God. Cheers.